Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. I was praying through the service for today over the past couple of weeks and reflecting upon many of the things taking place in the culture and the society at large, knowing that we would have some young families join us here on the platform, bringing their children to dedicate them and to dedicate themselves to raising those children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. I couldn't help but wonder if they really understand all that's involved in this process. And I thought perhaps as we turn our attention back to the ministry that God has entrusted to us as parents, and reflect upon some familiar passages of Scripture and even our transition uh, moving further toward a, a family ministry emphasis, to encourage you again from Deuteronomy chapter 6 by reflecting upon the nation of Israel, the transition that they found themselves in getting ready to possess the land that God had promised to them, and trying to prepare them for many of the obstacles that they would soon face. I think of these young families today and the obstacles that they are facing that I never had to face in my lifetime and and in the time of raising my children. I've also learned after 40 years of marriage, next week I will have been married 40 years. How did that happen? Um, You never stop parenting. You never cease to be responsible for your children to speak into their lives hope and and truth and promise and blessing. And as we wrestle through those things and reflect upon that reality, we come to this text in Deuteronomy 6 that is well known to many, at least in verses 4 through 9. If you follow along, that text says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words shall I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." There's a calling that's reflected in the passage of Scripture in Ephesians that I read this morning. As parents assume that responsibility to bring their children up to raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord by the things that they teach them and the things that they say, and at the same time by the content of their character, living and abiding by those same principles that they teach and proclaim to their children. And this passage of Scripture often referred to as the Shema, that special prayer and the worship of God's people, we're reminded that we have been blessed with children. We've been called to love the Lord our God with every aspect of our being, and when He chooses to bless us with children, we are given the weighty responsibility to teach them with all diligence according to the text. To talk of these statutes when you sit in your house to speak of these truths when you walk in the way, from the minute you lie down to the minute you rise in the morning, you are to be reminded and bound to the Holy Scriptures, the statutes and the commandments and the rules 
that the Lord God had given to this nation of Israel. Paints a picture of the phylactery practice of the New Testament, Old Testament era where they would write out on, on little parchments, passages of Scripture, and roll them up and bind them to various parts of their body to nail them to the doorposts of their house as a constant reminder of their covenant relationship with their God, the promises that He had made, but the responsibilities that He'd levied upon them to live lives of obedience. Now we leap forward many, many years from the time in which Moses wrote this to the contemporary society in which we live. And while we're not moving into a new land, we are without doubt in uncharted territory in our culture today, where the Christian worldview, the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, and the sanctity of personal responsibility has all been but erased, and there's no consciousness anymore of the Judeo-Christian worldview that makes us all accountable to our Creator and Maker. This has had dire effects upon the family, dire effects on men and women within the context of that family. It will have dire consequences for our children as the curriculums, even in many public and private education schools today, are turning away from the God who has given us life to the worship of self and a radical individuality that does nothing but confuse and release us to our passions. Well, ever the realization that many of those passions are fleshly passions that take you fast and furiously away from the God who has created you. And as we address these things, we're going to do it in, in a broader picture. And I did tell these young couples when I met with them this morning that the content of this message is not solely for them. So for those who've already put your Bibles away thinking that I'm going to talk to these six young couples, you have something else coming, and it's going to be a boldness that calls you to account, because we are living in perilous times. I believe that it's the most dangerous time of life in my lifetime of 60 years. The paradigm shifts, the seismic changes that have taken place have radicalized our world and transformed it before our very eyes. And I don't believe that we will know the consequences of much of this movement away from God for generations to come, if in fact the Lord tarries. But I happen to think He's not. I must begin to wonder if His patience is wearing thin with this Western civilization. And I look forward to the sound of the trumpets. But it doesn't relieve us of our responsibility until we hear the sound of that trumpet. So what does it mean to commit ourselves, these young people, their marriages and their children to the Lord? How do they keep that straight in a Christian culture that all but idolizes the family and in a pagan culture that is doing their utmost to bring destruction to the family? from the LBGTQ movement to Black Lives Matter to third and fourth wave feminism, there has been this concerted war on the family for some time now. And it's reared its ugly head, and now the traditional family, 
given sanctity by God, defined only by Him, is unraveling not just in the culture, but in the church today. Because we've been lulled into a philosophy that is vain and contrary to the Scripture. And we must find our way back to the truth if that truth is going to set us free. And we must do it for this next generation. First doing it for ourselves, then our marriages and our families, and ultimately these little ones that God entrusts to us. For the time that we have left this morning, I want to focus upon this. I want to focus on another aspect of this text. I I want to talk about some very real realities in the context of the life that we are living in the pagan culture that is post-Christian at best, fully pagan at worst, and ask ourselves, what is the way forward? Before we do that, let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, again, we come to You asking You to teach us through the ministry of Your Spirit and the power of Your Word concerning the things that matter most in our lives and in Your body, this church. Well, we understand the freedom to live out and work out these values on a very deeply individual level. There are some principles, Lord, that we cannot waver on, and as we're called to those things, may we be clear in our assessments. May we know and understand what it is You require of us. May we find the place that we desperately need to find today of comfort and hope and promise as we raise our children in a crooked and perverse generation. pray that You would teach us how to love You with all of our heart and all of our mind, with the very passions of our life. And we ask that You might use us as we commit to that, to live lives of example to a world that is looking for something of substance and hope to cling to. We believe that it's always been You. We believe that we find You through Your Son alone. We believe that the gospel changes everything. So remind us of truths that we know very well. Give us application consistent to that truth. Teach us how to live soberly and righteous in this present age, regardless the godless characteristics of our age. Permit us, according to Your kindness, to pass on our faith to our children, to our children's children, and to their children for Your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For many evangelicals today, the family, unfortunately, has become an idol. The family is God's idea, as Sharon James writes in her text, God's Design for Women in an Age of Gender Confusion. It is the building block of society, and we've always known and preached that as a church here. The family, God's 
idea of the family is under attack. And as Christians, we want to support family life, but in seeking to defend it, we can give the impression that family life is the ultimate aim for human life. In other words, we could fall into this trap of thinking that family is the end all. Family is to be worshipped. Family is to be idolized. Family is everything. But that would be a gross misrepresentation of this text. If we were to go back to verse 1 of Deuteronomy chapter 6, as God is preparing the people to go into the land, Moses says, now, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. Here are the rules. Here are the principles. This is what I've promised. Make sure you don't stray from these principles, that you may fear the Lord, to reverence Him, to respect Him, that holy God that we sang about, you and your son and your son's son. Speaking of the extended family, but if you notice as He gives this command, He first calls you as an individual to live a life of obedience. By keeping His statutes and His commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, and a land flowing with milk and honey. The principles of success that God reiterates here, the promises that God makes <coughs> are conditional promises upon obedience but they're also rooted and grounded in His covenant promise to this nation of Israel. As we take this text and make it only about the family, we have forgotten what the foundation of that family is. And the foundation of that family is every single individual long before you ever have a family making a commitment to love the Lord your God, as He says in verse 5, with all of your heart and all of your soul, and with all of your might. That is the primary aim and goal of every believer. That is what must be utmost in our minds and in our pursuits. It's not the family per se. It is the God of all creation who has rescued us through His Son, Jesus Christ. We as individuals must be fully committed to that God, fully committed to loving Him in, in every aspect of our being. And you say, well, I don't even know what that means. What does it mean to love God? The text tells us. Listen to what he said. Be obedient to his commands. Be obedient to his statutes. Be obedient to his rules that he has commanded you to do. Jesus in the New Testament in dealing with his disciples says to them some of the waning days of his ministry with them, if you love me, keep my commandments. We've been sold this notion in Christianity today that love is an emotional thing. And although love entails emotion, love is a choice. It is a factual thing. It's a decision that we make in our lives. And the decision that every one of us needs to make in our lives as we go into uncharted territory and, and challenges like we've never known before is a commitment to our God 
the New Testament, a commitment to our Savior, Jesus Christ, to love Him with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our might, and that is measured by your obedience. You say, obedience to what? We'll get into the book and find out. It's pretty clear. He gives you principles and statutes and commands, both Old and New Testament, that He calls you to, to live holy and righteous in this pagan generation and in the challenges for Israel, at least, as they enter into this new land. It's not until they, at least in a small way, understand their individual responsibility, then they're ever equipped to pass that responsibility on to their children. If the parents don't know, the children won't know. And if the children don't, won't know, the, grandpa- or the grandchildren won't, won't know. It starts with a personal commitment, and it extends to family. And sometimes we get that backwards. It's about the family, particularly in some groups of, of Christians today. That, that seems to be what we worship and, and, and an idol. Well, we've got things to do in the family. We can't come to worship. Well, listen carefully. You're telling your children that the family matters more than the holiness of your God. And I know that comes across harsh, (laughs) but our children learn as much from what we do than they do from what we say. Do you love the Lord your God with all of your heart? I need to be with God's people. I need to be worshiping. I need to be celebrating His goodness. I need to know what He expects of me. I need the help of the Holy Spirit. And when this begins to happen in you, we can pass that on. Don't switch that around. And even more importantly, don't don't hire out that responsibility to anyone else. The responsibility of taking that faith and love and passing it to the next generation solely rests upon the parents. It solely rests upon mother and father in the home living out their faith and expressing their love for God in obedience and, and teaching by example their children how to move forward in life. For too many Christian families, Christ is not the head of the home. Something else has replaced him. The consequences of that are dire. You love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul. That's first. That's foundational. That's got to be the center. From there flows the blessing upon the marriage and the family and multiple generations as we teach the Scripture and live out that truth. If you go to verse 20 in this text, we pick up what the author author states, when when your son asks you in the time to come, which implies that your son will ask you, (laughs) it's just a matter of time, and for the gray hairs, you know, that time comes often and fast and furious as you raise your children. And when your son asks you in the time that is to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Why would they ask such a question? Was it perhaps because they didn't see it in their parents? Was it perhaps because they didn't understand its context? Was it perhaps because it wasn't taught to them according to Deuteronomy chapter 6? Well, all of those are possibilities, but there's another possibility. 
This is sometimes lost in the text. They are now entering into a new land. And this land is filled with pagans. This land is filled with idolatry. This land is filled with new and different ideas. This land does not embrace the God of the nation of Israel. The land that we are living in does not embrace our Savior, Jesus Christ, and a biblical worldview. I believe that part of what is happening is these children start to say, ask, what is the meaning of all of this? Why should I believe this? They're saying this. This is what I'm seeing in the culture. These are the things that I'm up against. Why should I believe you? So when they ask you, what is the meaning the testimonies and statutes and the rules that your Lord God has commanded you, you must go back to the beginning, and that is to what? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind. To raise your family and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And now we come to this crisis time where your kids are saying, why? If you have a child over two, you are probably sick and tired of hearing that question, right? Why? Well, you know what? It doesn't end when your children are 30. They still ask, and you still have an obligation to tell them. But how are you going to tell them something that you don't know yourself? How will you lead them to a place where you haven't achieved yourself? How are we going to engage this? Again, through obedience to the statutes, through systematic training and instruction, when you sit down or walk in the way, through, through teachable moments in life, you share this truth. So when he asked, verse 21, you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. You tell your story, And the story is the story of the gospel from Genesis to the book of the Revelation. I find it really interesting in the context of Paul's sermon on Mars Hill when in the city of Athens, a a city known for its philosophers and teaching, he engages them and takes them right back to Genesis chapter 1 to lead them to the point of truth. That is the story we tell. It is the story of the Scripture, the redemptive story that begins with this notion. There is a God and you're not Him. He has created you and given you life, and you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind. Now, there's a lot in between that, but it has to start there. So when your son says, what's the meaning, what's the point, and why, you tell the story. And the Lord, verse 22, showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all of his household before our very eyes. This is what we saw God doing. This is what God did for us. This is what God is doing even now as we go in to possess this land. Now, this is really important. This isn't your story. This is God's story. Facebook is the place that you celebrate your story. This is God's story. Well, you know, we were in a bad way in captivity, but God stepped in and did something about that. You know, we were pressed on every side, but, but God stepped in and did wonders delivered us from the house of Pharaoh. We saw God 
at work. He brought us out from there that, that He might bring us in and give us this land that He swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all of these statutes. Why are we doing this? Because God said so. So we might learn to fear and reverence the Lord our God for our good always, that He might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as He had commanded us. In other words, when your son asks, you say, this is the essence of life. You must love the Lord your God with all of your soul, all of your heart, with all of your mind. You must be obedient to his statutes and commandments, and his rules and principles. And you must celebrate what he's doing. You must see him in every circumstance. You must praise Him with every opportunity provided for you as you see that the hand of your God has been upon you and He's sustained you. Some of you have been through really difficult times. I, I know difficult times. But my place is not to go on Facebook and talk about those dis- difficult times. It's to stand in front of you and say, let me tell you what God was doing in the midst of the worst of times in life. He was faithful, faithful, faithful. That's the story you tell. That's what Moses is commanding the people. When you face these obstacles and they begin to wonder and question, take them back to the book. Teach them what it means to love the Lord their God. Teach them what it means to be obedient and remind them that God is at work and our very lives and destiny are based on our obedience or at times our disobedience to that. Rod Dreher in one of his latest books, Live Not by Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents, talks about and interviews numerous people who grew up in Marxist regimes and communist countries where there was all but the elimination of any God talk and the elimination of any history or uh, at best a deconstruction or reconstruction of, of how things really were. I was fascinated as I read through some of the conversations that he had with these dissidents who had to live their faith when their faith would cause them to be imprisoned or even threatened of their life. They learned the importance of Deuteronomy chapter 6. They understood that the only survival that would ever come to place and come to pass would would be to remind themselves of what God was doing, and even in the worst of times, that that He was still at work. Dreher sums up one of these testimonies by saying to his people, to perceive the critical importance of memory and the role culture plays in preserving and transmitting it is critically important for Christianity's survival. You have to tell your story intertwined with what God is doing and what God has done, the principles of the Scripture and your own personal testimony, and that history and that reflection and that rehearsing of memory is critically important to transmitting the hope that you have in God through Christ to the next generation. You must tell His story. And when you forget those things, and when you cease to tell that story, confusion remains. I want you to know that we are living in a culture today that all but wants to erase history 
and God's story of redemption throughout all of mankind. There's a reason the statues are being torn down. There's reasons for the 1619 project and the rewriting of history. There are reasons to this attempt to deconstruct and say it really didn't happen this way. This is the way it really happened. Because whoever controls the past controls the future. Whoever controls the memories controls what happens next. Whoever is in charge of passing to the next generation, whatever truth they wish to pass will influence that next generation. Memory matters. Your story doesn't matter. My story doesn't matter. God's story always matters. Always. These dissidents interviewed by Dreher, one in particular, Vaclav Benda, a communist Czech dissident, from a Catholic family, said, refuse to let the media and institutions propagandize your children. Teach them how to detect lies and to respond to those lies and refuse them. He often taught his children how to read the world around them and how to understand people and events in terms of ignorance or indifference. He would take his worldview And he would take current events, and he would tell his children, this is why this isn't right. And this is the story that is right. It was Deuteronomy being played out and lived out for our very lives. But unfortunately today, in this culture in which we live, even in the church culture, we've outsourced the responsibility of raising our children to other entities and things. It's the church's job. It's the school's job. It's someone else's job. According to the Scripture, it's our job to make sure the next generation knows the story. We can't convince them. We can't make them believe the story, but but we have all of the responsibility to tell them the story as Moses is communicating even to this people. Sending your children to church twice a week proclaiming that you're raising your children in a Christian home is simply not too true. Very provoking, and maybe it was intentional that way. A website provoked to proclaim this string of posts was made on Facebook recently. Christian parents, sending your kids to church twice a week is not raising your children in a Christian home. If the only conversations about Jesus Christ that your child has are at church, then saying you are raising them in a Christian home is dishonest because you're not. You're the one who will give an account for the raising of your children, not your pastor, not the children's minister, not their Sunday school teacher. How often do they hear you talk about Jesus? How often do you read the Bible with them? How often do you preach the gospel to them? what Moses is talking about here. Moses is not taking responsibility for these generations. He's placing it squarely on the parents. And he's saying, you must first love the Lord your God with all of your heart. You must live lives of obedience to the truth. And you must recognize that it is you and only you that's the first and last line of defense in the minds of your children. So when your son asks. We we take them back to the book. We take them back to the truth. 
Christian Smith and Bridget Ritz and Michael Rotolo, and their, in their book, Religious Parenting, Transmitting Faith and Values in Contemporary America, state that the single most causal influence on the religious lives of American teenagers and young adults is the religious lives of their parents. They will eventually be like you. Let me take you back just for a second. How many of you remember the day when you said something or did something or performed some task and said, oh my goodness, that's what my dad used to do or say. That's what my mom, it's our worst nightmare. We decided we're not going to be like them. They're out of touch. They don't know then from the beginning. And, and then there comes a point in time in life you say, oh my. It's like my, my father's voice was com- coming out of me. It happens. Reinforces the reality of this text. Parents are the most powerful causal influence in the religious lives of American teenagers and young adults, not their peers, not the media, not youth group leaders or clergy, not their religious school teachers. Myriad studies show that beyond a shadow of a doubt, parents of Americans play a leading role in shaping the character of their religious and spiritual lives even well after they leave home and often for the rest of their life. Furthermore, this parental influence has not declined in its effectiveness since the 70s when they began this longitudinal study. But I know some of your stories, and I know my story. As we're wrestling through what we're supposed to do and oftentimes what happens and what we do do, we're, we're caught in this reality of, of trying to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that we're so ill-equipped to do it seemingly what God has called us to do. It's a statement or a question that I came up with. Families are frail at times, characterized by weakness that can lead to failure under the onslaught of the attack of the elites. Repeat the mantra that the family is an extremely oppressive institution, particularly amongst ideological social justice warriors today. It's really an attack upon God and the sanctity of life and marriage and personal responsibility. And it's horizontally achieved a radical individualism that is consumed by nothing more than fulfilling its own desires. We don't live for God. We don't even live for the family anymore. We live for self. Unless we think that we're not tainted by the world, we are in more ways than you can ever imagine. And that's why a return to the Scripture is so important. And we go to the Scripture and we come under the weight of conviction and we realize we are living for ourselves. We're not loving the Lord our God with all of our heart. Oh, oh God, what are we supposed to do? Get back to the truth. That's what he says in the text. Under this increasing reality, can the biblical family survive? Is it even possible that the family can ever again embrace the reality that it does not exist for itself alone? The family isn't the end all. Your God is, and your love for God is. Will there ever be a time when Christ is again the true center of existence, shaping our lives, our families, and His church, and the world? Well, you've been around me for 20 years now. You know my answer. You, you bet it is. It's still possible. 
it's still possible to live the way that Moses called the children of Israel to live and was repeated by Christ and the disciples throughout the New Testament. The gates of hell will not prevail against God's family, His church. And I believe that God honors parents who honor Him first in the raising of their children. So, of course, it's possible, but it's going to be harder than you ever imagined. And the challenges will be greater than you ever thought they would be. So, what is it then that I would share with you as the number one thing of importance in raising your children? What counsel would I give these six couples up here? I want you to go back two chapters, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29. Again, as Moses is preparing them for the challenges that lie ahead of them, he's warning them about idolatry. He's he's warning them about hypocrisy. He's warning them about forgetting. He's warning them that, that memory and the memory of the statutes and the commandments and the ordinances and the rules, the memory of a God who loved us, the memory of the story of God in our lives and, and in Israel and in the church today, that is a critically important memory. And as he gets to this place where he says, you're going to fall away and you're going to forget these things, he says in verse 29, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find Him if you search after Him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. What does it mean to seek Him with all of that? He has to be the center of the story. His way has got to be the only way. Our love must be a sold-out, sell-out kind of love. And We must seek Him with all of our heart. We must love the Lord with all of our heart and soul and mind and might. We must commit everything to Him. We must recognize that this isn't some part-time job. We don't come to church or bring our children to church and expect everything's going to work out okay. We must have these difficult but most important conversations about what God is doing in our homes. When we lie down, when we stand up, when we sit, and every opportunity seizing the teachable moments to say, let me tell you what God says, and let me tell you what it means as we face the challenges of the day. The truth of the matter is, two kinds of Christians those who sincerely believe in God and those who just as sincerely believe that they believe. Let's just stop for a second. Richard Wormbrand, in his text in God's Underground, makes an alarming but very weighty statement. There's some who sincerely believe in God And then there's others who believe in what they believe. And they're all here this morning. You want to find Him? You have to search with all of your hearts. You want to find Him? You must know what He said. You want to find Him? You must see Him at work and celebrate what He's doing. You want to find Him? must ground yourself in the Word 
You must live a life of obedience, and you must form your life around the Lord your God and the love that you have for Him. Richard Wormbrand goes on to say, you can tell them apart by their actions and decisive moments. Those who believe in God and those who believe in their belief will be revealed today and in the days ahead and how they respond to the crisis of the culture that we're experiencing today. I believe a purging is coming to the church. I believe there's going to come a grave divide between those who have and those who don't, those who love and those who don't, those whose story is their story and those whose story is the story of God and His grace and His forgiveness and His love and His Word and His calling. It's those people who will search with all of their heart and find Him. And those who believe in what they believe or even idolize the family will fall by the wayside. I don't want any of that to happen. That's why we came to the text this morning. We are in a battle for the hearts and the souls of our children. We're in the battle of our lives as well. Hero Israel. The Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, and you will stand out like a sore thumb, but you will stand in the presence of your God and King Jesus. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. There shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when your son asks in time to come, may we be faithful to the message, faithful in our lives, and faithful in living Coram Deo before the face of God in an ever-pagan land for His glory. Simple truths far more complicated to make it a reality, but simple truths. May God find you faithful, and may you be one of those who sincerely believes in God. Not in your faith, not in your family, but God, because in the end, that's all we have. In the end, we're woefully inadequate. So that's why we sang this morning, oh, come, all you unfaithful. The answer, it's always been the same. May we pass it on to our children with eternal results. Father, thank You for the opportunity to gather in this place to celebrate with these families, to reflect upon truth, to contemplate things bigger than ourselves, to wrestle what it means to live soberly and righteous in this present age. And I pray. For every person here this morning, they know you. Not about you. May their belief be bigger than their belief. May their belief being a God was bigger and greater than anything they could imagine. May they search you, seek you with all of their heart. May they learn to love you. 
May it impact their marriages. May it impact their children. May it impact their children's children. And may it somehow send a message to our world that at a time when everything is changing, some things never change. Teach us to worship. May we find our hope in Christ alone. May we grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But may we love Him with all of our heart and soul, our mind and our might. May we tell the story and wait to see what God will do in the lives of our children and their children and anyone who comes across our path for your honor and glory alone. When the time comes and we're asked, may we be faithful, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.